Welcome to A Portrait of Jesus with Dr. Bill Creasy. Tens of thousands of you have already listened to Dr. Creasy's one-year Bible, 76 five-star lessons that take you through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Now Dr. C drills down and uncovers the most important person in Scripture, Jesus. With his characteristic wisdom and wit, Dr. Creasy introduces you to Jesus, not simply as a figure in the Bible or someone you meet in church, but as a living and breathing person, perhaps the most significant person who ever lived. You're going to love this series, and it's free for our listeners. So a portrait of Jesus. Over the next 10 weeks, we'll be painting a portrait of who he is, what he did, and what he's continuing to do even today. And I'd like to begin by making a statement to lay the foundation. The Lord Jesus Christ is the virgin-born, sinless Son of God, who took our sin upon himself, went to the cross on our behalf, paid the penalty for that sin, died on that cross, was buried, and rose again three days later. Forty days after that, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes for us on our behalf. And I can tell you for sure, Many of you know me, and I know many of you, and he's probably busier today than he ever was before doing that interceding for us with the Father. But that's who he is and what he did. That's the outline, the basic outline. And we'll be filling that in. We'll be adding color, tone, texture, sound, and so on uh, as we go. So to begin this portrait of Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, why did he come here to begin with? Why was he put here on this earth? And to begin, to lay that foundation, we need to go back to the book of Genesis, right at the very beginning. And let me read to you, starting from Genesis chapter 1. Now, we are in a Bible class, so bring your Bible so you can highlight them, write in them, and so on. If you don't have a Bible with you tonight, there are Bibles in the pews, and you can follow along there. But here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Picture that as a dove hovering over the waters, the wind blowing beneath him. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And the light was good. And it separated the darkness from the light. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made an expanse, a firmament, it's from a metalworking word, like a dome, a polished dome overhead. The water up there, separating the water. Sure, when it rains, the water's up there and it comes down, right? So it separated the upper waters from the lower waters. And God said, it was good. And then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and dry ground appeared. 
And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kind. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be, serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. Oh, and he also made the stars. Just threw them out there. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. And so God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kind. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them. He said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so and God made the wild animals according to their kind, the livestock according to their kind, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. Now, you might have noticed, let us make man in our image. Who's us? Well, we have a few possibilities. God could be speaking of the angelic host as a corporate body. Let's work on this. Or it could be the royal us. As Queen Victoria said, we are not amused, right? The royal us. Or it could be the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, existing from all eternity, one in being. I rather like that one, and that's where I'll stand. And he made us in his likeness, in his image. Teshlam. I have, the lights are shining down. I have a little shadow here in front of me, not much of one. It's in my image, it's shaped like me. It's not me, but it's like me. 
were made in the image and likeness of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. I, a male, am not in the image of God. You, a female, are not in the image of God. Together, we're in the image of God. Together. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it that will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Apparently, we were all vegetarians back then. <laughs> and God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, and by the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Seven days of creation, one day leading to the next, to the next, to the next, each day moving toward perfection and completion completion and perfection. And what is the crown of creation? On day six, you and me, us, in the image of God. Imagine. How did he do it? Well, in chapter two of Genesis, we read, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and no shrub on the earth had yet appeared uh, on the earth, and no plant had, in the field had yet sprung up. The Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth. And there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord formed the man, male, masculine, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Notice every other act of creation, God simply spoke. Let there be X, Y, or Z. But with us, he formed us from the dust of the ground. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And he breathed into us the breath of life. We are the only creature that God created that carries within us the very breath of God. Think about that. We carry within us the breath of God. It's what makes each individual person infinitely valuable, infinitely unique. It's staggering to think of it. We carry within us the breath of God. The Lord God loved this creature he had made in his own image. 
Here in chapter two, we meet him. We call him Adam. Adam just means man in Hebrew. We meet him. I think God was delighted with him. And here in Genesis chapter two, God will walk in the Garden of Eden with the man, talk to him, socialize with him, sit down, they'll chat about this and that. And God had all these other animals there. And the man said to him, what's that? And God said, what would you call it? A rhinoceros. Rhinoceros? And God said, well, why don't you name the other ones? So he did. You can imagine a parade of animals coming by and Adam naming each one. And God is standing next to a tree just delighted with the whole thing. Absolutely delighted. And the man was working in the garden. His job was to tend it, care for it, nurture it. A lot of work. That was the Garden of Eden, after all. And God stood aside, and he watched the man, and he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Notice it was God who said that, not the man. Apparently, Adam was perfectly fine with it. He was out there trimming the rose bushes and thought, when I finish up, I'll go in and have a beer, watch a football game, life is good. <laughs> God said, this is not good. I will make a partner for him. A partner. Adam had no suitable partner. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's, not ribs, sides, and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God not made, built a woman <laughs> from the side that he had taken from the man. And he brought her to the man. And Adam woke up, and he looked at this creature. And he broke into poetry. The first poetry in the Bible. He said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called Isha, woman, for she was taken out of Ish, man. He makes a little joke. And God laughs and Adam laughs and Eve said, what are you laughing at? Notice, she was not made from his head to top him. Not made from his feet to trample upon him but made from his side to be equal to him, next to his heart to be beloved. I think that's wonderful. Matthew Henry said that back in the 18th century. And that's why a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they'll become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They simply looked at one another. They didn't see other. They just saw themselves. If only it would continue on that way. Time goes by, and we hit Genesis 3. 
Now, the serpent was more crafty, more subtle, more shrewd than all the wild animals the Lord had made. And the serpent, the serpent is nakash in Hebrew, the shining one. Who is that? If we go all the way back to Revelation chapter 20, we read the serpent, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, Satan. Oh, there's a whole backstory to that about a war in heaven, a third of the angels being cast out, Satan vowing revenge. Well, here he is. The glittering one. Not a, a serpent, a snake crawling on the ground, but a shining one. Apparently superior to Adam and Eve. And if indeed he was the most glorious of all the angels and fell, he is quite the creature. And watch how he engages her and how she engages him. The serpent was more crafty, shrewd, subtle than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did he really say that? I can, I can hardly believe that. And she said, well, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must uh, not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. Now, back in chapter 2, when God spoke to Adam about this, he said you're not to eat from that tree, but he mentioned nothing about touching it. So the serpent, crafty, shrewd, subtle, added that little point. Really? She said, no, we must not eat of it and must not touch it or you'll die. Now, why did she think that? Can you imagine Adam, now that she's created, giving her the grand tour of the garden? Oh, here, here are the, uh, the pomegranate trees and the olive trees and the, these. Well, what's that tree? Oh, I'm not sure what that is, but we're not to eat anything from it. In fact, don't even touch it. Bad idea. Don't touch it. She references that. And that opens up a gap for Satan. Because I could just see him do it here in chapter 3, verse 4. He leans against that tree, touching it, and he said, you won't die. In fact, if you eat of this tree, you'll be like us. Apparently, a shining one, a glistening one. You'll know good from evil. Well, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, and took some, she took some, she ate it, and she gave some to her husband. Now, she didn't bite the fruit and then find him and seduce him into having some too. No. She saw the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it, and she gave some to her husband, who was standing there with her. He was right there next to her. And he ate it. Now, wouldn't you think 
given what God had told Adam, he sees the shining one there. There's something not right about this whole scene. What should Adam have done? He should lead. He should have said, wait a minute. You want her, you got to come through me. But he didn't do it. He ate it too. And their eyes were opened. And they realized they were naked. They saw other. And they sewed fig leaves together. And as the 1580 Geneva Bible reads, they made britches for themselves. And the man and his wife heard uh, the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from him. And the Lord God said, uh, where are you? As if he didn't know. Right? You know, you have, a, you have a little child. I have uh, two sons. They're grown now. And a grandson is three years old. Well, you break the lamp. And what happens to the kid? He hides behind the couch. And you see his butt sticking out. And you say, where are you? Right? I mean, God knew. Of course he knew. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, well, the woman that you put here with me, this is your fault, you know, she gave it to me and I ate it. And the man said, now the Lord said to the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, well, the serpent gave it to me and I ate it. She blames him. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he, the woman's offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What, what's happened here? In our Christian perspective, sin has entered the world. With that disobedience, sin has entered the world. And we define sin not as an act that we commit but a condition that we're in, a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. In other words, had I been in a right relationship with God, I wouldn't have held up the 7-Eleven, right? The action is simply symptomatic of the condition, and that condition has four characteristics. Number one, sin is subtle. No one wakes up in the morning and says, gee, I'm going to sin big today. It just sort of happens. You know, you're, you're at work, you take a break, you're getting coffee, you're chatting with people, there's a, you know, there's a, a new person in the office, uh, and you're chatting them up and giving your best jokes, and you're getting attracted to them, and it just kind of happens over time. You didn't plan it, it just happens. Number two, sin distorts our judgment. Rather than confront it head on and deal with it, 
We rationalize around it. Well, it's no big deal. It's not particularly important. And uh, uh, no, we rationalize around it. We don't confront it. It's in a subtle. It distorts our judgment. It escalates. It gets bigger. It doesn't stay put. You need another sin to kind of cover up the first one. Think of the story of David, my favorite story in the whole Bible. It's one cover-up after another after another. What's David's great sin? I'll bet anybody would say, adultery with Bathsheba. Well, that's where it started. But then, Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, a senior officer in David's military, David murders him to cover it up. And then he has Uriah's men murdered to cover that up. That's big. And finally, sin cascades down through generations. It doesn't stop with you. It affects your husband, your wife, your children, your friends, your neighbors, everybody around you. And it cascades down through generations. You can't stop it. Sin enters the world. Well, sure enough, chapter 4, Adam lay with his wife Eve. She became pregnant, gave birth to Cain. They got together and raised the little Cain. <laughs> uh, and she said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Cain and Abel. Cain is jealous of Abel. He killed him. So sin has escalated from disobedience to God to brother killing brother. And then in the seventh generation, Lamech kills seven men. And then by chapter five, uh, chapter six, at verse five, and I'm only a few pages into the Bible. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Look how far this has run. So what's God going to do? If I were God, there's a thought, <laughs> I, I would just wipe them out and start all over again somewhere else. But God brought the flood and he washed the board clean. And he gave humanity a second chance. And Noah got off the ark, and he planted a vineyard, and he got drunk, and he cursed his son Ham. And by chapter 11, we're at the Tower of Babel. It happened all over again. Well, I'd be finished with humanity for good. But not God. In chapter 12, this issue of sin has to be dealt with, and God has a plan. In chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, a totally anonymous character from Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur is down by the Persian Gulf today in southern Iraq. I've not been there. On my bucket list, I want to go to Iraq and Iran. 
There are so many important things there in scripture and I've not been to either. Back in, uh, during the second Gulf War, I, I was planning to go to Iraq with a colleague from Israel. And uh, we were all set to go and then the war broke out and, and he emailed me and said, I think I can still get us in. And I thought, oh, this is great. A, a Marine and an Israeli Jew wandering around Iraq during a war. I can, I can see us on YouTube getting our heads cut off. And we, didn't, we didn't go. But eventually we'll get there. We'll get there. But uh, Ur of the Chaldeans. And he's totally anonymous. We have, there's nothing about him. But he said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's house, and go to the land I will show you. He's going to move him from Ur of the Chaldeans up through the Tigris-Euphrates Valley to Haran, eastern Turkey, and then from Haran all the way down to the land of Canaan, what we call Israel today. And God made a covenant with Abram. He said, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. God begins his plan of redemption right here with Abram, Abraham later. Right here in chapter 12, God introduces the plan of redemption. And from chapter 12 all the way through the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Right in a straight line, it is a linear narrative, a straight step-by-step -step through the Bible in linear time. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has the 12 sons who become the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the story goes on. Oh, it's a great story. We're doing a portrait of Jesus. And I, I like doing these quarter-long specialty classes. A portrait of Jesus, a portrait of St. Paul, uh, meet the women of the Bible. Little 10-week classes like that are a lot of fun to do. And, uh, but typically, I teach, and this is what I've done from the very beginning, through the entire Bible, verse by verse, Genesis to Revelation. Takes about seven years. And we are currently in the seventh year of a series in four different locations. Carlsbad, La Cañada up north of LA, Orange County and Cyprus, and back down here in San Diego at Our Mother of Confidence. Year seven. We do Genesis, Matthew, Exodus, Mark, back and forth, back and forth, weaving the text of Scripture. Many of you have been in those classes and many of you have graduated from them and you're here tonight. I see so many familiar faces out here. But uh, this linear narrative goes all the way through. Once we get to Esther, linear narrative's over and then we turn the page. And when you get to Esther, after all that material, what do you learn from that? The lesson you learn is if you do what God says, all will go well. If you don't, it won't. Simple as that. If you do what God says, all will go well. If you don't, it won't. And then you turn the page to Job. Job does everything God wants, 
and his life goes to hell in a handcart. What's that all about? It questions the basic message of Scripture. And Job is set during the time of Abraham, the beginning of the story. It makes you think for sure. But then you turn the page to Psalms. So Job recapitulates back in the time of Abraham. The Psalms, 73 of them are attributed to David and then other people, they recapitulate back. Then we have uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, all by Solomon, recapitulating back to him. And then we have the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They're all operating during the time of the kings. Every single prophet is back in the time of the kings. So we have a straight linear narrative from Genesis through Esther, then recapitulation back into those various books. It's a wonderful study to do it in that way. But what's, what's the issue here? God is the main character in Scripture. Sin is the conflict. Redemption is the theme. And right after we have the event with Adam and Eve in the garden in chapter 3, right after the fall, remember what God said to Satan? And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, the woman's offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I am going to bring someone onto the stage of history who defeat sin and death, who will destroy Satan, and who will redeem all of humanity. Redeem, to buy back. Many of you remember, I'm sure, S&H green stamps. Remember those? You go to the store, you pay your bill, and they give you green stamps, or go to the gas station, you get green stamps. We collected those all when I was growing up. We had a whole kitchen drawer full of them. And about once every couple of months, my mother would get new books and would sit at the kitchen table and lick them and stick them. <laughs> and by the end of the night, you get your tongue sticking to oh, it's awful. But, uh, and then when you got enough books, you got a catalog. And if you, you look in the catalog and, oh, look at this new technological marvel, a microwave. You know? And if you had enough books, you could go down to the S&H redemption store and redeem the books, right? You give the stamps back to who they belong to, Sperry and Hutchinson, S&H, right? And they would give you the microwave. You redeemed the stamps. They were bought back. That's what redemption is. God buys us back from our captivity to sin and death. And he does it through the Lord Jesus Christ, who will walk onto the stage of history in Matthew chapter 1. His job is to redeem humanity, and he does the job. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson. It's our gift to you. And be sure to check out Dr. Creasy on LogosBibleStudy.com for a treasure trove of truly in-depth teaching verse by verse through the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation. 